I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Monday, October 22nd, 2018. Jay Billis is a former star college basketball player at Duke who became a lawyer and then a college basketball commentator and analyst. Since 1995, he has graced the airwaves of ESPN, becoming one of the most recognizable names, faces, and voices of the game. Outside the arena, however, Billis has developed another reputation. That is one of the most prominent critics of amateurism and the NCAA's other player-suppressing rules. This unique dualism, being both a paid exponent of intercollegiate athletics while constantly condemning one of its central tenets, has made Billis a subject of fascination and high regard beyond the sports world. Last year, for example, The Atlantic magazine profiled him in an article titled The Case of Jay Billis versus the NCAA Will Now Be Heard. Well, today, a jury in Manhattan will convene in an actual case, what is being called the College Basketball Corruption Trial. This spawned from an FBI investigation into numerous under-the-table payments made as inducements to star high school players. Last week, as lawyers in the case were wrapping up their arguments, Billis and I spoke about the degradations of amateurism, something that we both agree on, and the dimensions of its culpability, something that we don't exactly agree on. Among other things, Billis explains how a passionate critic of amateurism can still be a passionate college sports fan and how he tries to delineate between his paid job and his unpaid advocacy. Billis tells me why he has empathy for scandalized ex-Louisville coach Rick Pitino, and he shares a story about hosting Mark Emmert, the NCAA's president and a frequent Billis target, at his golf club a few years back. Our conversation goes for about an hour, and I hope you find it as interesting as I did. And so, without further ado, I give you Jay Billis. All righty, Jay Billis, welcome to the NM Fishbowl podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so you and I are now having a conversation in what is uh, the home stretch of this college basketball corruption trial, although that's probably an overstatement. I'd love for college basketball corruption to be put on trial, but it is really the federal government's prosecution of three former Adidas grassroots employees who were accused or are accused of paying star high school basketball players under the table in order to induce them to go to certain Adidas-sponsored college basketball programs. And this is the result of the FBI's investigation that was made public about 13 months ago that implicated Arizona, Auburn, Louisville, USC, Miami, and Oklahoma State. The theory of the case, and that's one of the things I want you to really help me understand better, is that the, the federal government is arguing that these employees somehow defrauded the college basketball programs and their universities by tainting the amateur status of these recruits that they paid. When I saw this break last year, at least the FBI investigation break last year, my first reaction was, ugh, now the FBI is policing the NCAA's rule book. I'm curious how it hit you when you heard about this last year and sort of how you've now seen this trial transpire over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, when I first heard about it and read uh, all the charging documents, and I read them right away, um, I was very surprised that the uh, federal government was getting involved in this sort of thing. <coughs> Excuse me, it just seemed too small uh, for the government to, to, to be involved in. And the theory uh, of, of the case seemed really shaky to me. It didn't seem criminal in nature. And really what the government's theory is that, that these are federally funded institutions at over $10,000. Um, and as federally funded institutions, the government's got an interest in this. Uh, so this is not a, a, an issue of federal law. Like there, there's, there's not a federal law that needs to change for this not to be a crime. The only thing that needs to change is a, an NCAA rule. All, all this is hinged upon is, is amateur, NCAA amateurism rules. And so the government's theory is that by compromising the amateurism 
uh, of of players, uh, what uh, the these three defendants have done is they have victimized the schools, and they have not been able to properly allocate their ass- assets, meaning the scholarships, and so and they've been subject to penalties from the NCAA that could be monetary, uh, you know, disgorging profits, uh, giving back championships, vacating games that'll cost them money, things like that. So it's really kind of a shaky legal theory uh, in my judgment, but good luck telling the, the federal government what's a crime and what's not. But it's also the Southern District of New York, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office. This was one of those kind of drugs on the table uh, uh, press conferences where the U.S. Attorney sort of stood up there and, and kind of grandstanded, honestly. And, uh, and it, it's not horribly unusual for, for um a U.S. attorney to do that out of the Southern District of New York, but it seemed like a touchdown dance when they were on the 50-yard line to me. Uh, so th- this case has been really odd, and and the last thing is really odd is you know the the case is very close to wrapping up and going to the jury, and and it strikes me as, as odd that uh, truth is nobody really cares unless unless a transaction is done right on on Mark Emmert's desk, uh, the NCAA doesn't seem to care. Uh, the media doesn't seem to care, and the fans certainly don't care. Um, so it's it's that, that that struck me as being a little bit little bit interesting as well. That that, that college basketball and college sports in general are, are in the position now of being too big to fail. Nobody nobody wants to acknowledge that this is going on, and they just want it to go away. Now the judge in the case, there's been an effort, at least from what I've read, of from some of the defense attorneys to try to basically put amateurism on trial explicitly in the case, and the judge has resisted that. Can you fill me in a little bit on that dynamic? Because that was one of the things I and some like-minded spirits, perhaps yourself, was hoping would really um, transpire in the course of, of uh, testimony is, is just the question of why is this, why, does, why do these payments, if they occurred, have to be made under the table? Yeah, um, I actually don't think that's a crazy thing for the judge to, to exclude um, because the NCAA, as ridiculous as some of their policies are, in my judgment, they, they're not on trial. It's just a question of, of did the defendants uh, do what's been alleged? And so, you know, amateurism, uh, as, as dumb as I think it is, and as big of a sham as I think it is, uh, I don't think it gets it gets the court any further, gets the jury any further in, in making its decision. It's sort of what the defendants are kind of asking here is is an issue of jury nullification, really, um, in my in my opinion. So I, I I don't I don't fault the judge for saying, hey, let's let's keep this on the rails here, and not make this about this is not about amateurism. This is about uh, whether these these payments were made and whether this did actually victimize the the university. So it's not a uh, to me, the, you know, sustaining the objections of, uh, of the prosecution in this and, and disallowing this sort of testimony or, or line of questioning is not uh, uh, not out of line. Uh, for those of us who do care sort of fundamentally about amateurism and sort of are, are constantly evaluating where we sit on it, is, does it does it work out now that if the government wins the case, that is a, a kind of a, a win for amateurism and if and conversely if it loses the case that's a strike against amateurism at least in the in the uh, popular culture no I don't think it has anything to do with amateurism I, I think if you've got a functioning brain you know you look at, at, at amateurism as as a total joke the way the NCAA does it and uh, you know we've got a multi-billion dollar business here if this were amateur we wouldn't be selling these players for this amount of money uh, and we wouldn't be paying coaches what we're paying them and, and using the players as billboards uh, for, for shoe companies for, for money. And, and it's not just for a little bit of money. It's not like the, the, you're using the players' name and likenesses to have a bake sale to have enough money to be able to field the team. This is a ridiculously large uh, commercial industry. And, uh, and billions of dollars are being generated annually in this. And, you know, football, basketball, you name it. And, you know, look, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't have any problem with the commercialization of these games. The, the problem I have is the commercial uh, commercialization, and then, you know, the NCAA and, and all the member institutions telling us that nothing to see here. These players are just students like any other student. Uh, 
And that's a lie. And it's been a lie since 1906 when the NCAA was founded. So that's really the issue. I don't have an issue with how much money coaches make or all that stuff. That's fine. I think it's great. They should make as much as they can. And I don't have an issue with how much, how much uh, you know, the, the NCAA is asking for, for their media contracts and all that. That's great. But don't, don't treat the players like criminals uh, if, if they want more than just a scholarship. That's, that's, that's the biggest problem I see. It's been noted by a few people that the NCAA has not done anything on its own to investigate the improprieties that have, have been revealed at least the improprieties of its own rules that have been revealed in the course of the FBI investigation. And there's this suspicion that they, they very well just might not. How do you feel about that dynamic? What, what do they do, regardless of what ultimately the jury decides in this case? What does the NCAA do about all these now allegations of players getting paid? And what does it mean if they do nothing? Well, it, the fact that they've done nothing to this point is not problematic because the federal government, has, from what I understand, has asked the NCAA to sort of stand down while these cases are being adjudicated. Uh, with what the NCAA learns from all this, uh, I would expect them to follow up on and, uh, and do their own investigation. And now they can import some of the, the, the findings that have been uh, in evidence uh, from, from this federal trial. Um, but what it does point out is, is, you know, you've heard over the years NCAA administrators, whether they work in Indianapolis or whether they work at member institutions, say, well, you have to remember, you know, we don't have subpoena power as if, as if they, they, they feel like they should have it or right. that that would be some magic bullet that, that they could look behind the curtain and find out everything that's going on. And the truth is the federal government has subpoena power, but they can't just subpoena – the federal government can't just subpoena anybody they want any time they want. They have to have, have probable cause. And, and so you know, while there were wiretaps and, uh, and, and they uh, executed on, on search warrants in this case, it's not like they can just wiretap any coach's phone or any agent's phone or anything like that. They've got to have probable cause to do that. And so this is very limited in scope. And so for those out there, and if the, if the government did not do this, the NCAA and all the coaches, they'd all say, hey, game's clean. Everything's great. Nothing going on here. We're, we're, doing, we're doing great. They, they'd all say that. And, and you know, it's limited right now to, to these, these defendants. And if it, you'd have to be pretty naive to think that this is not going on on a much larger scale. Uh, you'd have to believe that, that these defendants were out there rogue bidding against themselves. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a pretty hard case to make that, that it all ends here. But, uh, but I think the NCAA will look into it uh, further and you know, they'll have a, a decent roadmap to, to ask some questions. But uh, you know, I, I go back to what I said before. You know, outside of maybe a few people in Indianapolis that uh, that that have their eye on the ball, uh, most people just don't care. They want their games and they want to watch the the bet on the games and watch them and watch their teams play and uh, and do their brackets. But uh, you know, they don't they don't really care about this. And I, I've been a little bit surprised by that. I thought this would generate a little bit more uh, acknowledgement that um, you know that we've had this for a long time. This has been going on forever. And, uh, and it's being laid bare to an extent uh, in, New, uh, you know, in lower Manhattan. And, and it, it has been crickets as far as the NCAA, administrators, commissioners, coaches, you name it. Everybody's pretending like this isn't happening at all. Okay, so to, then, to that point then, I mean, here we are coming to the end of 2018. We've now, over the last number of years, had these what were supposed to be catalytic events as it relates to the reform of college sports or the end of amateurism. We had the Northwestern football players attempt to unionize. We had the O'Bannon lawsuit. We had the recent Alston v. NCAA case. And now we have this FBI investigation. And in each one of these, there's this anticipation or maybe hope from certain individuals that this is going to lead to some sort of fundamental change to amateurism. And it hasn't yet. I'm wondering though, where you feel we are on this continuum of reform. I mean, are we, have we made big strides just in getting people 
to think differently about amateurism or to think differently about the NCAA's rules. And what does that even mean in terms of how far we are from, from real reform being done? We have made huge strides. And, and look, no multi-billion dollar business is going to give up this chunk of change voluntarily. They're going to have to be made to do it. But think about where we were five or six years ago when, when the NCAA was restricting how much players could eat and they, uh, there was no stipend. Um, they, you, know, they, you weren't even getting full cost of attendance. You know, stuff like that. Uh, and, and, and five, six years ago, nobody would have said, uh, you know, maybe we should think about letting the players benefit from their name and likeness. They're saying that now. I mean, we're inching closer to the players uh, being able to realize their, their economic value and, and to wield their economic rights in, in this multi-billion dollar market. Uh, uh, that the college sports space. So there have been tremendous strides made. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you. You go to these campuses now and look at the facilities. I think the I think the money the the, the school should be allowed to give the players the money rather than build these you know gigantic six hundred million dollar uh, facilities for them. But the players are better fed. They're better taken care of. All that stuff, and that's all been because of of this. You know, the, the NCAA is allowing. Their, its member institutions to do everything it can to keep from paying the players. So they'll take even more money than paying the players would require to keep from paying the players. And uh, and you know they're gonna they're gonna fight tooth and nail for that. But 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 we've made tremendous strides, and I think we're we're showing we we I mean I mean the whole enterprise, not just you know people who have been critical of it, but but the enterprise is being shown. Uh, that that it is um, sort of craven in its approach that there, there's a bigger uh, gap than there's ever been between the players and uh, and the moneyed elites in this being the coaches and the administrators who are making tons of money while the players are, are limited to a scholarship only. So I you've been profiled in a number of different places talking about sort of your position on the NCAA and your fights with the NCAA. Um, at least rhetorical fights with the NCAA. Um, I, I want to ask you just about, may, and maybe this is just the rhetoric we use when we discuss this. When you talk about the NCAA, are you talking about the organization based in Indianapolis, or are you talking about everybody who's a part of this, this enterprise, this phenomenon, all the member institutions, all the university presidents, all the coaches? What, what do we mean when we say that the NCAA is sort of restricting athletes rights to to uh, earn earn fair wages i am talking about all of the member institutions and everybody that works for them uh the ncaa will always tell you that they are the member institutions uh so it, it's a it's an interesting way of going about things so i use the ncaa's rhetoric when uh when i say ncaa so when when somebody complains about a rule and a school being, uh, you know, punished, uh, people will say, well, wait a minute, you know, the schools are the NCAA, the school made it, the schools made those rules. Uh, so I, I basically use that to say the NCAA is the whole thing. And I, I try to be careful with my words on saying when I'm talking about the office in Indianapolis, I make that pretty clear. But otherwise, I'm talking about the entire enterprise not just Mark Emmert and his merry band in, in Indianapolis. Right, and I think, you know, uh, that, that is sort of the challenge because I think now people on both sides of the debate want to make this a debate about the NCAA or, or use the NCAA as the, uh, as the metonym for the problem. On the other side, those who are trying to sort of just contain the, the criticism, you know, the, the risk is that people really are just acting like we're just playing by the rules, we have no stake in this, or we have no decision-making power, um, when in fact the NCAA is not ultimately the financial beneficiary of this, of this unfair economic system there. I mean, I, I was looking through their 990 the other day. They take in a billion dollars a year, most of it from the college basketball television rights for March Madness. But they disperse almost all but of 60 or 70 million dollars of that in the course of the year, either on expenses of running the tournament or that's the disbursements to the member institutions. 
So Mark Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, who is a loathsome figure in his own right in all this, and gets paid a lot of money to say fairly disingenuous things about amateurism, still makes $2 million a year. That makes him basically in line with a top 50 paid basketball coach or a top 60 paid football coach. So I, my concern is that people do get confused about this and they think they can just criticize the NCAA as if it's as if it is sort of the uh, as if it is the the Wizard of Oz in this whole in this whole movie, and forgetting that there are so many more stakeholders. The problem is so much bigger. The commitments are so much bigger than just the NCAA. But yeah, yeah, but it's really kind of a, it, it, with all respects, really kind of a dumb debate because when we when somebody complains about about Congress or or you know laws that are made in the United States, they don't say well remember. You know, every American citizen voted for this, so it's you know it, it's their fault. You know, you don't do that. You can complain about about the way Congress is run, and there are plenty of complaints about the way the NCAA office is run, and the way the the, the representatives that are making these rules, the way they run things. Uh, just because you know things are voted upon doesn't mean that everybody agrees, and uh, and so we have that thing too. But when you're talking about policy and the enterprise itself, and then the way the amount of money that's made, just because you know the NCAA office only a billion dollars a year or so flows through that office, that that's a, a tiny number compared to what the member institutions are all making uh, with their their conference deals, what they're making off uh, uh, merchandising uh, and, and the like. Um, so that's all NCAA money too. And this isn't just a billion dollars a year. That doesn't even take into account what football is making and all this other stuff. Um, uh, you know, this is a this is a bunch of money made by the NCAA. It's not just a billion; it's multi billions every single year. And that's that's my point. Um, that that this this goes way beyond uh, just the the basketball tournament and uh, and the office in Indianapolis. That that's a that's a, a small part of this. This is all the member institutions. That are are making decisions, making uh, big time commercial decisions, uh, while claiming to be amateur. They are not amateur. They are professional. They're professional in every way, shape, and form, except for how they compensate the athlete and how they treat the athlete. So the first guest I had on my podcast several weeks ago was New Mexico basketball coach Paul Weir, and I suppose the newsiest takeaway from that conversation was when I pressed him on the ethics. Of amateurism, he fairly willingly conceded that athletes should be free to earn whatever they can without restriction, and I think he deserves credit for saying that since so few coaches are willing to say that or have said that on the record. But then he was also very quick to defend those in the business, coaches like himself, as merely operating within the framework that is provided to them. Basically, don't blame the coaches; we're just following the rules, um, and. I, I feel uncomfortable about that. On, on one hand, you know, I don't want to get too, too um, nitpicky with people and, and, their, and their culpability. But on the other hand, if you can't blame or hold accountable the prime beneficiaries, of which I would say college men's basketball and football coaches are in this system, then haven't we all just acquiesced to that sham itself? I mean, so I, I wonder from you, having been a player and, and now commentating on, on college basketball, what is the level of moral or ethical culpability of college basketball coaches now? Uh, I don't consider that to be a big issue. Um, to me, it, it's like, what, what is, what is, you know, going back to our, you know, equating it to the, the United States of America, you know, when our government acts inappropriately, what is our ethical and moral responsibility as citizens? Are we to re renounce our citizenship and leave the country if we disagree with our government? And the answer would be no. Uh, I would hope that we would speak out and we would work to, uh, to change policies and actions that we don't like. Uh, I would hope that, that coaches would do the same. Uh, but but there's a, uh, to me, there's a disconnect there. Um, I don't look at this as being a moral or ethical decision. I, I think it's more something like, you know, what's the best policy here? And are we doing things according to our rhetoric? I believe the answer to be no. Now, some coaches think that, um, 
that players shouldn't be allowed to transfer. They think it should go back to the way it was in the old days, all this stuff. They, they preach accountability and all that stuff. Uh, and so they, they actually believe that things are great right now. Um, other coaches say, hey, you know, we should do more. Uh, they're all over the map. So I don't hold coaches uh, uh, responsible for this. They're not policymakers. Uh, I hold the presidents responsible for this more than anything. Um, I think the, the, the rhetoric of the presidents is, is downright um, uh, contradictory to the point of being, being hypocritical. And when you say that, that athletes are students to be treated like any other student, uh, and then you treat them worse than any other student, you know, people look at, well, wait a minute, look what they get. Well, the first thing they get that every other, no non-athlete student gets is they get limited. No, no non-athlete student is limited in any way in the marketplace. They can be on scholarship and they can, they can earn or accept whatever they like without restriction. You know, no college is saying, wait a minute, you're earning too much money outside of the classroom here. You're supposed to be learning about how to make money in the future and educating yourself. That's inappropriate. They don't do that. They celebrate their students that are, are making money and doing well outside of the university or, or even in the university if, and they make money. An athlete that, that makes money is, is doing so in, in contravention of NCAA rules and they, they treat them like a criminal. And, uh, and for presidents who don't see that, that as smart as they are, uh, I find that to be, uh, uh, to be unsavory, frankly. Do you think you can be a president at a large university with a big, uh, big athletics department and feel that way, or at least publicly feel that way. I feel like presidents are increasingly becoming some kind of super athletic directors in terms of just being these, you know, guardians of the gate of athletics and, and of amateurism, where most of these people have no background or often have no background in athletics. I wonder if it's just now a job requirement for anybody at a, uh, at a major college university to, um, to come from that perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think what, what's happening is they're just trying to protect the status quo because, uh, you know, change brings into, um, into play a lot of variables, a lot of risk. There's no risk right now if things stay the same as long as possible. Uh, they continue to make a ton of money, um, and, and right now that, that's all they want to do is, is keep the flow of money going. Uh, and I, I look, I get that. I, I don't think they're they're bad people, but when they step up in the Alston case and start talking about you know this this notion that boy if we start paying players, then the market will dry up and people stop watching. That's essentially what 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 uh, a lot of these uh, presidents that that testified that they testified to, and contradicting their own professors, uh, their own economics professors who they hire to educate their students. Um, it, it, it's it's almost laughable for them to suggest that, let alone testify to it under oath. It, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, when I'm a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, so it was Wisconsin's president said one of the more risable statements along those lines during the Alston case, I believe, where she said that uh, effectively, if we have to allow athletes to get, you know, open up the compensation opportunities for athletes. We don't want to be in this in this uh, to begin with, which just is is a totally obnoxious um, uh, position. And, and again, and, and, and it's a lie. Is it's what a lie, right? Totally disingenuous. It's a lie, and it was a lie that that and I don't know that I didn't hear Donna Shalala say that, but uh, or I mean, it's not Donna Shalala. No, I'm sorry. she's a, she's in Miami. Right. Um, who, who's at Wisconsin now? The, the her name is escaping me. Other than okay, well. well it's a, I, I'm not. I'm said, not donating to them anymore. <laughs> but if it was said in court, it was said under oath, and and I don't have any problem saying that 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 if that if that's what was said, that that's a lie, and uh, and you know, look, I think everybody knows it, um, but we've got a system where the fans don't care; they just want their games. Like I don't think the fans cared about about uh, conference realignment; they just wanted to see their rivalries stay. And they want it kind of the way it's been. And uh, they don't, the fans don't care how much coaches are making. You know, they're not like storming the offices in Indianapolis with torches and pitchforks saying that, uh, that hey, coaches are making too much. This is not amateur anymore. They don't care. They don't care how much they're paying uh, uh, in media contracts. They don't care how much uh, uh, 
you know, they're taking from shoe companies. Heck, they don't even, they don't care about these criminal trials in New York right now. Uh, they just care about their games. And, but if the players were paid, they you know they didn't care about the stipend. Remember all the all the the, the doomsday talk about the stipend. Well, this stipend comes up. We're going to have to cancel sports, and it's right. going to be doomsday. It's going to be all this. Re- Everybody's given the stipend now. Nobody cares. You know, it's not like it's not like people are going. Well, you know, these these players aren't amateur anymore because they're getting a stipend. You know, nobody cares. They just want their sports, and uh, and and that's what these administrators are relying upon. Let's keep it the same. Uh, people don't care whether we limit them or whether we give them more. So let's limit them because uh, we can control everything and, and we can continue making money at the same rate. Uh, and, and the money keeps going up. The money keeps going up and they keep saying we don't have enough of it. We'll never have enough to pay. And it's just, frankly, it's a it's an egregious lie. What was the Rosetta Stone for you? Go back to in your in your personal history of when this dawned on you um that there was something just fundamentally unfair and and maybe more so not just when it dawned on you but when you actually decided to speak up about this and and view this as a as an important issue to advocate on behalf of well it dawned on me when i was it dawned on me when i was in college i was a member of a of an ncaa committee i was a member of the ncaa's long-range planning committee for a couple of years while i was in college and uh, and a lot of great administrators who were fantastic people uh, on that on that committee. I learned a ton from them. Uh, but I knew I knew at the time I got behind the curtain to see how the sausage was made, and I knew it was fundamentally unfair. But I also knew what everybody wanted to hear, and I found that out pretty quickly when I raised issues in in meetings and, and got shot down in a nice way, but got shot down right away. Uh, so you, you knew what, what everybody wanted to hear and what got rewarded. I, I, I towed the, the party line at that time. Uh, but when I got into broadcasting and after I, I got my legs under me and realized sort of uh, I need to, if I'm going to speak my mind on all these other issues, I should speak my mind on policy issues. Uh, I started to speak my mind. And, and I like to think I've done so respectfully. And, you know, it's not about the people. The people are great. It's, it's about policy. And so I'm not I'm not out trying to uh, attack the the views of other people. That's their, their views are fine. Uh, it's it's I want to I want to deal with the policies that I feel are wrong. And uh, and if the poli- hey, if the NCAA and, and the members if they feel the policies are so great, they should be able to defend them. And I think increasingly they're having a, a very difficult time defending those policies with a straight face. I was very heartened, as I'm sure you were, to see the uh, LeBron James sort of uh, funded documentary on on amateurism recently on HBO. But I'm I'm wondering why there's why are you are such a unicorn? Why aren't there more yous out there? There's plenty of people. There's plenty of athletes or former athletes who have experienced this and realize the the insanity and the one sidedness of it. And yet there's you and there's Sonny Vaccaro and there's Ed O'Bannon and not that many more prominent folks who are who who feel you know compelled to talk volubly about this and i'm i'm curious about why because it's easier frankly and i'm not i'm not asking for any credit on this because i speak out uh i I choose to do that just because i feel it's the right thing to do um but my life would be a heck of a lot easier if I just said, hey, it's going to be a great college basketball season. Look at these great point guards we've got. And, oh, my goodness, you know, the Duke-Carolina game is the best rivalry in history. Uh, life would be easier. Um, I wouldn't have to mess with, uh, uh, you know, dealing with issues of, of uh, you know, endorsements. I mean, I, I know that, that, that there have been people that have said, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should go another way because the NCAA doesn't like this. Uh, and I know that I, I, I mean, heck, I do a speaking engagement every year uh, at, uh, at the Final Four for an NCAA partner. And they've told me that the NCAA's asked, asked that I don't do it. Um, I, know, I know that happens. And, uh, but I, to me, it's not whether I do a speaking engagement or do a commercial is not that big of a deal. Um, but, it, you know, I'd have more money. I'd be making more money if I didn't, uh, if I didn't say anything. And I know that, but I'm, I'm older now and I don't care. Um, but uh, but it's, it would be a heck of a lot easier, and I'd probably be uh, uh, I'd probably have a, uh, a few more drinks and, and have a, a more enjoyable existence if I didn't talk about these issues. But I feel they're important, 
And I, I think it's important to note too, Dan, that that you know you know what what I've always found interesting. I've never sued the NCAA. Like I, I they're getting sued without me. I've never sued them one time. I, I, I am zero consequence to them. All I do is talk about uh, about the issues of the day. That's all I do is talk. Uh, you know, they're getting sued by other people, and uh, so if they think that this is, uh, if people think that this is coming from some you know big mouth commentator, it, it's not. Uh, th- this is this is a lot deeper than that. I'm just I'm just talking about and reflecting what's what's out there. That that's it. So you you have a law degree and you're of counsel at a law firm and you you are obviously. Uh very adroit at this issue have you ever thought about participating in legal action in one way shape or form no because i don't i don't practice law anymore i'm just a you know as you said i'm out of counsel um i've been with my firm for 26 years but i only practice full-time for about eight uh so i have no interest in doing that i have no interest in being a party to a lawsuit uh none of that um you know i'm a commentator just, just as if I if I say that uh, that you know there's a there was a bad call in a game or or a poor job was done by the officiating crew, it doesn't mean I'm going to go uh, sign up to be an official. Uh, you know it's, it, that that's not the way this stuff works. So um, I'm doing all I'm all I feel like I'm doing is my job. I'm just doing my job, and this is part of my job. The fact as to your earlier question, the fact that other people don't do it and don't see it as part of their job is I have no problem with that. And if somebody feels like if somebody believes in amateurism uh, and they want to stump for it and be a cheerleader, that's fine. I don't fault anybody for that. that, that their, their position is welcome and, and, and welcome to the debate. Um, but but I think it's I think it's awfully difficult for for proponents of amateurism to make a coherent case. And uh, and one thing I've never heard is is anyone say what the athlete gets, you know, what positive flows to the athlete from amateurism are they a better athlete a better student a better person as a result of amateurism and i think the answer is uh, is resoundingly no yeah I, I mean to the not not put this way but effectively one of the arguments i've heard is that they they have they get to enjoy the the experience of an impoverished college student uh it seems to be the only uh the only thing i've ever i've heard along those lines the um I want to ask you, right after the FBI news went public last September, I think in October, you did an interview um, on ESPN with uh, ex-Louisville basketball coach Rick Bettino, who had promptly been fired in the wake of that FBI fallout. Um, I thought it was interesting that you were the one who conducted that interview, given that the whole premise of the thing was predicated on, in some ways, NCAA impermissible benefits. And I kind of wanted to ask you how you felt being there asking those questions because you were, I mean, it was appropriate, but you were effectively interrogating Patino on whether he was aware of payments to players, even though I know probably in your heart of hearts, or I assume in your heart of hearts, that you don't think that there's anything wrong with that, even if he was. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, I don't I don't believe that you... Um, you change policy by breaking existing rules. Uh, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that that it's okay or morally right to to violate rules with which you disagree. Um, I disagree vehemently with with NCAA policies on amateurism, but that doesn't mean I think it's right to violate those rules. I think there are other ways to attack the issue, and so I, I think it's entirely consistent to to expect that rules be followed. And uh, and and think that they should be. And if you're not going to hey, if you're not going to follow them, uh, and you're doing it in protest, that you should uh, you should stand up and say that. Um, uh, otherwise, how, how's anything going to change? Um, so I, I, I don't I don't I don't see any problem in in conducting an interview or that saying that I disapprove of someone who violates rules. Um, uh, no, especially knowingly violates rules. Uh, uh, like, look, I may disagree with the speed limit. It doesn't mean I think that people should violate it. Uh, to me, those that that's not a contradictory position. I'm trying to figure out how I feel about Patino now because he has a book coming out. I saw you tweeted you you got an advanced copy and read it and tweeted uh, about how interesting you found it. Um, so right after he was fired from Louisville, he filed a federal lawsuit against Adidas. 
And in the interview that you conducted with him last October, he said of Adidas something along the lines of they took my love and passion away from me, not as the predicate of his lawsuit, but more of just a general comment. I don't feel a scintilla bad for Rick Pitino, who basically feasted on this fatted calf for the better part of four decades. Now when he's 66 and a multimillionaire many times over gets burned potentially by the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies of this economic cartel he's enriched himself by. I'm wondering if you feel any, if you feel more sympathy for Patino than, than let's say I do. I do actually. I, I don't. I don't look at it quite that way. Um, you know, look. The, these coaches are making the money that the marketplace allows. Uh, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, you know, I point out how much coaches make to point out that, that this isn't amateur. That somehow suggesting that that you know the players should should be amateur while nothing else in the business is amateur. I think that's a, a contradiction to the point of hypocrisy. Uh, and, and almost immoral, if not if not completely immoral, but uh, but when you have the rules that you know Rick Pitino was was fired. Uh, now you could say he should have known, but right now I, I don't have any evidence that he had actual knowledge that that one of his recruits uh, was was being paid. Um, uh, but you know I, I certainly think it, it, you could you could have some sympathy for someone in that position. If, if something was done in contravention of rules that you didn't know about, that you were held accountable for by your institution and fired. It's not just the money. It's, it's uh, you know, the fact that he's the only one in this that's been fired. Uh, the only head coach that's been fired as a result of this is Rick Pitino. Um, there are reasons for that. Uh, this is the second issue that he's had to deal with at that institution. Right. There was uh, the the, the, pro the, pro the, the prostitution ring scandal as well, or the prostitution yeah. scandal, right? Yeah. And and so, you know, you, you to me, like, I have no evidence that he had actual knowledge of either one of those happenings. Now, I'm not discussing, I'm not, I'm not touching upon, should he have known? Reasonably, should he have known? That's a totally different question. But, but uh, I do have sympathy for someone in that position and, and coaches that get fired over some sort of academic issue or get sanctioned for this or sanctioned for that when I feel that, that the rules are, are, are unfair. Um, uh, so I don't look at it uh, as you do that, uh, that just because and I'm not, I'm not characterizing, you know, your, your last statement. Uh, but, uh, you know, if somebody may think, Hey, these guys have made, made a ton of money off this, you know, good riddance. Uh, and I'm not saying you're saying exactly that. Um, basically, I'm basically, yeah, no, that's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't share that. I don't share that. I, I think there's a lot of, of uh, sort of unfairness that goes with this. And, uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, look, it, 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 we all serve at the pleasure of our employers. If, uh, uh, if, if Louisville decided, you know what, whether he knew, didn't know, this is the second time we're tired of this. We need to get it off the table, taking sort of the corporate approach to it. Right. Uh, they, they could have fired him the first time on that same on that same grounds, uh, on those same grounds, but decided not to. Second time, that's fine. I, I, they can do whatever they want. But but uh, your, your question was, do I feel sympathy or empathy? And, and, and I do. You, uh, your ESPN colleague, Dick Vitale, a couple weeks ago, I believe, tweeted out something is, in the wake of some of the testimony in this latest case. Um, here's what he tweeted out. He's referring to the father of a Louisville recruit, Brian Bowen. He says, it is so sad reading testimony of Brian Bowen Sr. selling his son like a piece of meat. Man, how does he sleep at night? Even sadder hearing about the sleazeballs that wheel and deal to hustle kids. Um, in response, a gentleman named Joel Maxey, who's a economist at Drexel and is the president of a association of sports economists, tweeted out, Vital has long been loud and consistent in spewing NCAA propaganda across the ESPN airways for 30 plus years. He has been the most effective at infantilism, college, calling college athletes kids, when he's, which he's done since the 80s, is his greatest contribution to college sports media. I'd be curious to, if, to have you unpack Vital's perspective on this, because what he said in that tweet, I, I find consistent sort of with 
what he often says about, you know, who, who are the real wrongdoers and what's the real problem in, in what something we all acknowledge is a problematic system here? You know, taking taking these two gentlemen out of the out of the equation, just talking generally uh, about this, um, the, the position from the original tweet, uh, I, I see a lot. Uh, I don't particularly agree with it. But but I respect that that opinion. Um, I I don't see these players as if you see them as being treated as pieces of meat by someone who would accept money for their services or who would uh, you know sort of act almost as an agent for a player uh, in that regard. Um, I think you could certainly make the same case uh, about what the schools do with the players and what media does with the players and all that stuff. Um, you know, I happen to think media acts exactly the same with regard to college players as they do with professionals. Um, you know, that's what we do is, uh, you know, rights holders sell us media rights and, and we put these games on television and promote them and do interviews and the like. And, you know, we don't pay a professional player for interviews. Um, we, being the media, we pay uh, an entity for its broadcast rights. And then the, uh, the, the, the selling entity pays their employees. Uh, and, and in the NFL, it's the players, uh, NBA, all that. They, they pay the players. Uh, the NCAA does the same thing. They sell their media rights to, to media, and, uh, and we promote it and put it on the air and, and do it for our purposes because we're, we're in the business to make money. And, uh, and it's up to the NCAA to pay their employees. Um, you know, if, if coaches aren't paid as much as we think, we think it's not our responsibility to go and, and, and take care of that. Um, but the response of the, the Drexel economist is, uh, while, while I thought it was a little personal, it is a, is a fair point that, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've always objected to the use of, of the term kid. Um, I'm probably guilty of using it sometimes myself. Uh, they're adults. Um, but, but there were some, aside from, from what seemed to be a little bit, uh, you know, pointed and individualistic and, and, you know, pointed at an individual, uh, there are fair points made by, by both. Do you, do you use the term student-athlete, or do you try to avoid using that term? I try to avoid it because um, uh, I think it's a – well, I know it's just a made-up term that Walter Byers came up with to uh, avoid workers' compensation uh, and, and so that the players couldn't be seen as employees. I hate it when they do it at, at press conferences in the NCAA tournament and say, oh, we'll have questions now for the student-athletes, and uh, student-athletes now get to leave, and the student-athlete, you know, okay, come on. They're athletes. They're athletes when they're in uniform, and they're students when they're in class. And uh, you know, no other no other person uh, in, in university life is is referred to that way. I mean, you might have student intern or something like that, but it's it's few and far between. But the student athlete thing is just propaganda, and it's totally useless. I, like I never, when I was a player at Duke, I never had any professor say yes uh, when I raised my hand. Yes, the student athlete in the back. You, know, you don't you don't do that. And uh, it's just it's something that's uh, that's you know taken over in the lexicon and that uh, that administrators use all the time because it it helps them reinforce the fact that that they're students and all you know all you need to be do to be a student is be enrolled. Anybody enrolled is a student. If you are not enrolled, you are no longer a student. That's all there is to it. And uh, uh, you know you, you, once you graduate, you're no longer a student. You leave school, you're no longer a student. They kick you out, you're no longer a student. Uh, so the student athlete business is a joke, and I try not to use it, but sometimes it slips through. I want to follow up or, or, or finish our conversation with just kind of having you tell me your evolution in trying to hold in a kind of equipoise this, this strong contempt for a fundamental tenant of, of intercollegiate athletics now, that of amateurism, while also being somebody who not only covers but clearly enjoys the products, uh, the, you know, the, the, the current products of, of intercollegiate athletics, specifically basketball, I, I had in a much, much smaller micro way, I had my own experience with this. I, um, I sort of was baptized by writing two profiles about Bruce Pearl, one when he was at UW-Milwaukee. I wrote a magazine piece for him that, about him then. And then one I wrote for Deadspin after he got uh, fired in the wake of the Tennessee scandal. Um, and 
as I kind of wrote the first story I wrote about him when he was at UW Milwaukee really was a charitable story about how he was kind of, you know, wronged and I, I took his line and probably ran much too far with it. And the last one, the, the one I wrote for Deadspin a number of years later, uh, was my way of making amends, let's say, for the first one and really re reevaluated who he was and what the uh, the scandal, the original scandal he was a part of when he was an assistant at Illinois was all about. So I, you know, uh, that was what got me to think differently, and this was seven or eight years ago, about college athletics, which I've always been a big fan of. Um, so I, I thought the thing was a sham by that point, or I came to think the thing was a sham. Amateurism was a sham. And there is a, a bunch of other lies that some of this has been built on. But at the same time, I'm a college basketball fan, and I'm particularly a University of New Mexico fan. And so I, I was trying to hold in this counterbalance, both liking college basketball, liking a team, rooting for this team, and also thinking in a, in a more macro level, there's something just fundamentally wrong about this whole enterprise. And at some point, I just got exhausted with it. And so what I've done over the last two years in effectively just investigating the University of New Mexico's athletic department is my is my way of, of uh, you know, one, I think it's interesting as a journalistic ex experiment. The other thing is, on a personal level, I feel like this is my cleansing. Um, I'm curious how you are. So, you, you know, you, when you go to these games, are you able to just kind of forget about all the other things you talk about when you're not at the games? Or is this ruined in some ways uh, college basketball for you, your, your recognitions of, of what amateurism is and, and some of these other aspects? Yeah, it hasn't ruined the game for me in, in one shape, any way, shape, or form. Uh, because I, I, I put policy uh, aside when I go to the games and when I'm, when I'm in practices and when I'm covering the sport. There's a difference between, to me anyway, and, and this may say something negative about me, I don't know, but... Um, uh, to me, the, 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 the enterprise and the policies that govern the, uh, the business around basketball is different from basketball. Um, you know, you, whether the players are paid or, or not isn't going to change the fundamental character of, of a practice or a game. It's going to be the same. Uh, how much coaches are paid doesn't change the job that they do. doesn't change it at all, um, in, my, in my judgment. So I don't go to games when I go, you know, well, I'm going to be doing the Duke versus Kentucky on November 6th in the Champions Classic. I'm not going to go to Indianapolis and walk in that building where tickets are going to be 150 bucks a pop and you're going to see all these, uh, all these big shots around uh, and it's going to be one of the highest rated games we have and, and you know, our football crew is going to be there with the college football playoff rankings coming out in between games and all that. I'm not going to go there and look at this commercial spectacle and say, you know, this is a travesty. I can't. I'm going to enjoy the enjoy it for what it is. Um, now, when we talk about policy, uh, I'm going to talk about how bad I think the policies are. But I'm I'm not going to be blinded by that. Blinded by how much I enjoy the games when I'm I'm dealing with the debate about about the policies themselves. So I don't know whether you call that compartmentalization or what, or, or I'm able to separate these things out. Um, but but I love the games. I love basketball. There is nothing wrong with any of this. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the amount of money that's being made. The only the only problem we have is that that the the actions that are taken uh, by the member institutions and by the the NCAA uh, are not consistent with their rhetoric. They're not they're they're, they're contradictory to the point of being hypocritical. And uh, and I don't have a problem pointing that out. And I don't think people should have a problem hearing it. You know, it's funny, Dan, the thing I hear most of all from people, and I get it, you know, that, that folks who all they want to do is watch the games. They, they don't care about the, the policies. You hear, hey, it, you know, you're making good money in your job. If you don't like it, quit. And I'm going, wait a minute. You know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, you know, if you don't like something, you know, if you first of all, if you love something, you speak out to make it better. Uh, and I, I love basketball. I love the I love college sports. I love all of it. Um, but I'm speaking out in, in an endeavor to, to do my job uh, effectively and, and hopefully to, to make it better. And uh, I do the same, you know, I would do the same thing in a political arena. Um, you know, there, there are policies of my government that I don't like. I'm not going to renounce my citizenship and leave the country. That, that's not the right way to, to approach things. And sort of that's, I, I, see, I see this the same way. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm 
not looking at it the right way, but that's the way I view it. Yeah, I have a slightly different analogy. I feel like I like playing blackjack, but I wouldn't want to play blackjack at a mafia-owned casino. I, so I, I don't feel, you know, that to me is, is more of... A, is is more apt than saying this is this is akin to renouncing your citizenship if you don't like if you don't like the policies or the current policies of the government but i i appreciate your perspective and look i clearly you are making as you said before you're making your life more difficult uh in pursuit of speaking nobly about a cause that i i would agree um is, is the right one and that is the cause to to end the restrictions of 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 basically the financial subjugation of college athletes and so uh good yeah, good for the, you but but the reason if i could just you know sure. push back a little bit on your analogy the reason the reason I, I wouldn't use that myself is that i don't see the ncaa as this evil actor um i, I think they are contra it's they they take contrary positions to their rhetoric but they're not engaged in illegal activity now it may violate antitrust law but uh, but but you know like I don't I don't equate them to the mafia somehow this is some illegal activity that that is is wholly immoral that I need to stay away from uh, I think if they if they change their policies you know we'd have this would be Nirvana we'd have nothing to complain about at all um, it, it'd be it'd be great as long as it, you know the the business that we see under the table should be brought out in the open and I, I think we'd have zero problems with it uh, from a policy standpoint, but I, I don't, I don't see Mark Emmert as being an, e, you know, uh, an evil mafia boss. Uh, I just see him as a, as a, a leader of, uh, uh, of an entity whose policies are misguided and wrong. And, uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't think he's an effective leader, but I don't think he's a bad guy. Have you ever had this opportunity to talk with him in a public or private forum to just talk amateurism with Emmert? I did, yeah. This was several years ago. I haven't, I haven't talked to Mark Emmert in I don't know how many years now. He is not, he is not one that clearly wants to talk. Um, uh, he wants to talk when it's when he doesn't have to be uh, put on the spot, frankly. Um, but he came. Uh, we, we got together. I don't know how many years ago. Several years ago now. He came uh, with some of his colleagues. Came to Charlotte, where I live. We had set up a few appointments where I was going to come up in Indianapolis, but he always had to cancel at the last second. So I finally said, "Look, you come see me whenever you're free." And uh, and I took him to play golf at my club. We uh, we spent the entire day together, had lunch, and had a lot of interesting discussions. Um, but uh, honestly, I'm not sure I've spoken to him more than once or twice since then. Um, uh, and it's not been from from you know I've not been available. It's uh, it's more he, clearly he doesn't he doesn't want to, and and I don't blame him. Uh, I'm not sure I would be seeking out his opinion um, uh, if uh, if I were him, uh, uh, or, or I, if I were him I wouldn't be seeking out my opinion either. You know he he's trying to keep his uh, his enterprise on the rails, and uh, and you know I, I I don't agree with a lot of the things that he says. But, but I certainly don't, don't uh, look at him as being a bad person or anything like that. We, we differ on policy issues. That's the, that's the end of it. Uh, it has nothing to do with him as a person. Well, Jay, I really appreciate this time. I, I would hope maybe you would consider during this upcoming basketball season, during a timeout or a stop and play one time to, when you're doing a broadcast to just, you know, slip in a little, commenta a little commenting on uh, how amateurism is a sham. Be interested to uh, see if you can just stir that in there while you're breaking down a, the, the defensive strategies of a, of a team. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. I, I, I kind of separate those things out, just like I don't talk about, uh, if I'm going to talk about NCAA stuff uh, on the policy side, I don't talk about, yeah, but the tournament's great. You know, I love, love watching games. You know, I, I don't do that either. So uh, I, try to, I try to keep uh, keep within my lane on whatever topic I'm discussing. All right. Well, it was great talking to you, and I hope we uh, touch base in the future. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care. You too. And so, there you have it. I would again like to thank my guest, Jay Billis. You can find an accompanying story to this podcast and all my Lobo-related content at nmfishbowl.com. You can email me questions or comments to editor at nmfishbowl.com. And if you'd like to commiserate about the splendors of unpaid labor, please tweet me at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. 
The NM Fishbowl podcast is available for downloading on iTunes. If you head over there, please like and subscribe. If you have been holding your breath for the New Mexico Athletic Director Eddie Nunez to respond to my numerous invitations, you can continue to do so for now. That song you hear in the background, which I'm now beginning to hear in my dreams, is from the Freak Fandango Orchestra's Requiem for a Fish. Thank you, as always, for lending me your ears. And until next time, I'm Daniel Libet. Hey.